You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today, we have a guest speaker. Well, we have a a guest preacher today, not really a guest. He's from our church, but uh, he's not done this before here. And uh, this morning, we'll be hearing from F.J. O'Leary. F.J. has served as our Deacon of Mercy Ministry for the last four years plus. And uh, so what that means is that uh, he and uh, others that that he leads uh, are involved in uh, overseeing our benevolence fund. So it's primarily caring for people who are in need of the basics, food, clothing, shelter, Uh, starting with people in our church. How can we provide for those who have needs in our church and then also into our community. So he's been doing that for about four years. He's done an outstanding job. And as we've observed him doing that, we've just observed a real pastoral skill and wisdom as he's helped people navigate uh, difficulties like the loss of their spouse or uh, the loss of a job or whatever the situation might be health concerns where people have found themselves in need. He's done a great job just caring for people and pastoring them through that. And so as we've evaluated and observed him, uh, we've wondered if God was calling him to serve uh, in eldership ministry. And so we offered him a a pastoral internship, which he's been doing here in recent months. And uh, he's just been a blessing, uh, such a blessing to us. Uh, He has been blessing, bringing wisdom, bringing experience, and also bringing availability. So he just retired uh, from his job. And so uh, there's something normally you think of internship with college age and not retirement, but let's change that. I mean, when people get older and have availability and time, let's put them to work in the kingdom of God uh, and get them off the beach in the golf course all year round. Let's put them to work. Uh, We had Bob Hughes here doing that uh, for us for years, and so there's something about that. I pray that the Lord would change our uh, vision for how we view uh, our senior years. So, uh, FJ, come on out here. Thank you for working so hard to prepare a message for us today, and uh, absolutely. (laughs) And also, I want to thank you personally, because we always call this Intern Sunday or whatever, uh, because you gave our entire pastoral team a week vacation so that we weren't preparing messages and doing that kind of stuff. Uh, so we got to get some rest this Christmas season because you worked through it. Excellent. So thank you so much. Uh, let's welcome out Jay as he brings Thanks, Craig. Thanks, man. <laughs> Keep having the thought as Craig's doing that intro as the deacon of mercy is going to need some mercy this morning. And, and Lord, give us all your mercy. This is not something I have done in a long time. Uh, really very humbled and honored uh, to be asked to do this. A uh, little nervous, very excited. My one true love is I love talking about our great Father and our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're going to be t- uh, talking out of the book of Lamentations. And if you'd like to turn there, go to Isaiah, turn right, go past Jeremiah, Lamentations, and it'll be uh, Lamentations chapter 3. Now, as I've been studying, reading through this myself, a lot of questions come, will come, I think, to your mind by reading this book. Certainly was my, uh, my, the case that I found as well. So there's some additional resources that AJ will slap up here 
that I recommend if you want to do a deeper dive on the book of Lamentations, uh, these are excellent resources. So in particular, let's start with Lamentations chapter 3 and verses 22 through 24. This is the word of the Lord. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You know, there, there are some verses that as you read them or maybe a brother and sister says them to you that you just find instant encouraged. For example, like the one in Philippians that says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Every time I hear that one, it's like, oh, good, thank God it doesn't depend on me. Or Jeremiah says, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans for wel- uh, welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Come on, let's have a future and a hope. Lamentations is another one. Steadfast love, new mercies every morning, a faithful God. They just make you want to breathe in and say thank you, don't they? These verses, though, in Lamentations, and there's a real paradox here. I don't know if you know this, the first time I ever discovered this, I was shocked. Did you know that Lamentations was written during a time of destruction and ruin? In fact, did you know even further that God, that's right, I said God, was the author of that destruction? During this time, God judged his people. The nation of Israel was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. God's own house, his temple, was destroyed. His people were killed, captured, exiled. And quite frankly, life as God's people knew it was over. There's three books in the Bible that really take on tough questions of life, like what is the purpose of life? And you can find answers to that in the book of Ecclesiastes. Craig's going to be doing a series Uh, on that soon. Another one, just on personal suffering, the book of Job addresses that. And finally, Lamentations, it certainly uh, addresses suffering, but what we'll find, it's it's communal or national suffering. I've got this quote from Philip Ryken that'll just help give us some, some background on this book before we dive in. It says, The communal focus of Lamentations makes its message message continually relevant for the church and the world. The book of Job helps people make sense of personal losses and tragedies. The book of Lamentations helps people make sense of national disasters like famine, warfare, and genocide. In a world of overwhelming human suffering, Lamentations gives voice to the deepest agonies of grief with the hope that some comfort may come by crying out to God for mercy. The historical background, uh, and then this is going to be really brief. I kept having the thought about Inigo Montoya's line from The Princess Bride. Let me explain. Wait, too much. Let me sum up. God used the Assyrian people to judge what was called Israel, the ten northern tribes, about 720 B.C. They were taken captive. They were scattered to the winds, and pretty much those ten tribes 
ceased to exist at that point. And then about 120 years later, God used the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar to uh, invade Judah, the southern tribes. And it wasn't one invasion. It wasn't two invasions. It was three invasions. And that final conquest occurred in about 587 B.C. Lamentations describes what that final conquest or judgment looked like. So as I'm, I'm talking about judgment and I'm talking about God doing the judgment, you got to say, well, why? Why did God judge his people? It's a pretty simple answer. It's because they were disobedient. In Lamentations 2, it says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. Key phrase, which he commanded long ago. He's thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Should God's people have been surprised by this judgment? Not really. He, he made a promise during the covenant uh, that he made with his people. Again, you can read about this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 27 and 28. He says, hey, I'm, I'm initiating a covenant with you. And if you obey what I tell you, there'll be blessings. If you disobey, there will be curses. And a summary of those consequences or curses would be confusion, frustration, and all that they would undertake to do. Pestilence, disease, drought, famine, defeat from enemies, exile. God sent prophet after prophet to his people over the years. And at times they did repent. But, as we heard last year as we were going through the book of Judges, there was this pattern that there was repentance, and then the next thing we see is every man did what was right in his own eyes. I think it's important to understand this isn't years of disobedience. This isn't decades of disobedience. This is centuries of disobedience. So now as we turn to Lamentations 3, after saying, okay, why did God judge? Have you ever had the thought? Probably not one that we all think about too much. Have you ever had the thought of what it would be like to experience God's judgment? This book will tell us what it looks like. And again, even though these, these next verses, when we start with chapter 3, verse 1, it's a firsthand account and experience, but don't miss the point that it's the community the nation that is suffering these things. They suffered, the siege of Jerusalem was horrific. They suffered famine to the point of cannibalism. Obviously, they were killed, captured, defeated, and exiled. So let's take a look, starting with verse 1, of what it felt like to experience God's wrath. And in verse 1, it talks about, the writer says, the rod of God's wrath. And it's just such a, a metaphor, isn't it? Because the shepherd's wrath uh, rod that is used to protect and defend is now being turned to bring punishment. He talks about being driven into darkness with no light. He says, God has turned his hand against me again and again all day. There's just this picture of just getting slapped around all the time. My flesh and my skin have wasted away. I have broken bones. He's walled up in a prison that he can't escape. God doesn't listen to his prayers. And in fact, it says God is actively blocking 
my ways. God is described as a bear and a lion that attacks and tears him to pieces. God is described as a hunter, and he is the target. God doesn't miss his target. He's a laughingstock to all people. His teeth grind on gravel, or as we would say in our day, eat dirt. And he cowers in ashes. As the writer lists these things out, the effect of writing this down, remembering what has happened, just leaves him with a summary aspect of, I've forgotten what happiness is. I have no strength. My hope is gone. And verse 18 ends with the haunting words, My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. As we look at verses 19 and 20, we could see he'd like to forget. I don't want to remember these things. But it keeps coming to his mind whether he wants to remember or not. What he has experienced, what they have experienced, and what they are continuing to experience. What are they continuing to experience? 19 and 20 says affliction or misery. Wanderings, they're now refugees. Wormwood, which is bitterness and curses. Gall, venom and poison. Verse 20 says, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Destruction, misery, hopelessness. The journey of God's people that started with Abraham seems to have come to an end in the darkness and death of this final invasion. Seems like there's nothing left to do but die. You know, every time I've gone through this, I keep coming to this point and I just want to say, isn't that a great message? Thank you for coming up and starting the new year off with that. And if that was the end, I'd be the first one to say, amen, I'm out of here, pastors. For the love of God, could we please not do that again? But you have to say, wait a minute. If God is God, is there an end? If God, if we know this God, are you out of hope? Verse 21 says, but, or yet, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Everything starts to turn at this point. He's driven by these bad memories, but as he looks, look at verse 18, and he, he said that my endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. I would submit there's two words that get him thinking, that arrest his thinking, that says, stop it. And it's just two words, the Lord. He has a choice. He can deny or defame his God in his suffering, and he can give up, or he can remember who his God really is. And as he remembers who God is, he begins to speak. He begins to testify Something different comes out of his mouth. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. This memory is so powerful that for the first time, he stops thinking about his suffering, and then he speaks directly to God for the first time 
And what does he say? Great is your faithfulness. His circumstances haven't changed. The life that he knew is over forever. But something significantly has happened in his soul. He has hope. He has hope because he knows this God. Hopelessness paralyzes us. It leaves us sitting in the ruins, in the ashes, with rags, bitter, lost, defeated. And as I look at these verses, I just want to know, I think you want to know, how do you go from my hope is over and my hope in God is over to great is your faithfulness? Seemingly from one breath to another, how the heck does that happen? I think it's because as he begins to remember who his God is, it causes him to get his eyes off of himself and up to the one that the psalmist describes as my glory and the one who lifts my head. Who is this God? Who is this God that they could have hope after experiencing all that they experienced? How do you go from being so lost to great is your faithfulness? Let's, let's remind ourselves with possibly some of the thoughts that he might have used to remind himself. This is the God that spoke to a fallen Adam and Eve, a fallen Adam and Eve. I'll send a deliverer. This is the God, the initiator, the one that called Abram and said, come on out of your country. I'm going to make a great nation from you and all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This is the God who lit a fire in the wilderness, uh, lit a, a bush on fire in the wilderness, except the bush didn't burn up. And out of that bush, he called Moses and he said, Moses, I'm the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he told them, oh, and my name is I am that I am. He's not the God that was. He's not the God that will be. He's the great I am. Aren't you glad that God does, God does not say to us, I was your God? This is the God who later described himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands or thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the, clear the guilty. This is who he remembers, the Lord, a merciful God who is slow to anger and abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. For us today, this is the God who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. This is the son that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Mercy mercy. What does that mean? What does mercy represent? The Hebrew word for mercy is hesed. 
And it's one of the most important theological terms in the Old Testament. It's used over 200 times. And it's translated steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness, love, uh, love unfailing, kindness, and pity. We don't really have a, an accurate English word for it. And it's why it's interpreted so many different ways. In addition to that, let me read you this um, definition from the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. It says, most importantly, mercy designates that quality in God by which he faithfully keeps his promises and maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people despite their unworthiness and unfaithfulness. It suggests the loving, merciful dependability of God, his gracious, steadfast character, his absolute reliability. As I was studying, I came across this quote from Christopher Wright that I thought, wow, that's, that's great. I definitely want to share that. Christopher Wright says, there's an important theological truth here. We should not equate God's love and God's anger as if they were both eternally equivalent attributes of deity. God's anger against evil is a terrible reality. It is the negative outworking of God's goodness in rejecting and repelling all that is contrary to his nature and will, but it is not eternally definitive of his character. God is love. God is not anger. On the contrary, God is slow to anger, but abounding in love. God will judge his people. God will restore his people. Now we maybe have a glimpse of why the writer can say, Great is your faithfulness. His faithfulness is not based on us. It's based on who he is and what he has said. It's not, our, it's not based on our opinions of who he is. It's based on who he actually is. It's not based on our opinions of what he said. It's based on what he has actually said. God will do what he says he will do. He is faithful to his word. He doesn't lie. The book of Hebrews says it's impossible for God to lie. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our culture changes. Man, does our culture change, doesn't it? In seemingly bizarre ways and at times seemingly moment by moment. And yet God, an attribute of God, he's described as the rock. The theological term of immutability, he does not change. This is why the writer, after losing everything, can then state, the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance, my share, my lot in life. I have him. From an earthly perspective, he has nothing. From an eternal perspective, he has everything. He has God. Brothers and sisters, this is what we're called to. Is the Lord your portion? your inheritance, would you give up all the world has to offer to follow him? Jesus describes this portion as being like a treasure hidden in a field that a man found and he covers it back up, runs off, sells everything that he has so he can buy that field. Or it's like a merchant in search of great pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, again, went and sold all that he has so that he could buy it. The world in doing things the world's way offers ruin and destruction. 
our God of hope offers his steadfast love, his mercy, his faithfulness, his inheritance. He has offered us his son, Jesus Christ. Who is this God? This God is the one that to all who will receive him, who will believe in his name, he will, begin, he will give the right to become children of God. This is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Challenges and trials have come, haven't they, this past year? You may be experiencing some right now. And it doesn't take much of a, uh, be much of a forecaster to say that challenges and trials will come with this year. I would submit we have or will have the same choice. We can sit in the seeming destruction or misery of our own lives, or we can do what the author did. We can call to mind the Lord, remember God, who He is, the great I am. Remember His mercy, His steadfast love never ceases. He is faithful. He is our portion. He is why we hope. He is why we wait. He is why we seek. Christianity isn't some cleverly made-up tales. It's a daily relationship with the living God. This is the relationship I want to experience with our Heavenly Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the relationship you want to experience. This is the relationship we want to experience. So how do we apply something like this? As I had the privilege of preparing this, I sat, had the opportunity to sit with Craig and, you know, it's be pretty difficult to find a better resource than Craig to talk about a message with, isn't it? Uh, what, a, what a wonderful gift he is to us and um, so appreciate his friendship, uh, his pastoral care, and his leadership. Uh, but he, as he's looking at my message, he's saying, he asked me a question. He said, do you have a burden or has God put a scripture on your heart? And that was easy to answer because when he, as we were talking about it, the Lord gave me these verses almost immediately. I said, it's, it's a scripture. And Craig just said one thing. He said, go deeper. And it really resonated with me because initially I was going to go from here to here to here to here to here. Um, I, I can do that really, really well. And when he said, go deeper, how I looked at that is, well, let's, let's, let's go deeper into these verses. There's more here. You can't just gloss over this. It won't serve anybody just to say, just to read these scriptures without the context. And, and church, I would submit to us that that may be a prophetic word to us for 2023. Go deeper. The book of Job in chapter 28 has this fascinating picture that talks about the lengths that guys will go through, that men will go through to find earthly treasure. And it's talking about a mine and swinging from ropes and being in the dark and trying to find gold or silver and all of these different things. And in that same chapter, there's a question that says, from where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? God, and then it says, God understands the way and he knows the peace. The, <laughs> the place. My point is really simple on how do we go deeper. We have to put some effort in. If we're going to dig for treasure, it's true treasure. It's the same picture that we see in Job. We've got to put effort in to find it. 
We've got to see the value of the treasure, the pearl of great price. Let's dig it out of the field. Work through the piles of shells for the pearls of great price, for the pearl of great price. Let's seek our God who understands the way to wisdom to him, and he will show us. Why? Pretty simple. Our hope is tied in knowing who he is. So dig deep. You know, I just had this thought of coffee cup Christianity now. Um, you know, we all see scriptures on coffee cups, posters, pictures, and don't get me wrong, I'm all for that. My wife has that throughout our house, and they're great reminders. But coffee cup Christianity is not going to sustain us. If that's the amount of our relationship with the Lord, when the trials come, it's not going to sustain you. I'd encourage you with this year, read God's Word, study God's Word, engage in Bible studies, study the attributes of God. It's a lot easier to trust someone when you know them. Do word studies, perhaps loving kindness, uh, His mercy. Let's meditate on God's Word. Let's fellowship with each other around God's Word. We will better be able to stand trials and more importantly, do actions, good works. They'll come as we know the Father better and Jesus Christ whom He sent. That was application one. Application number two, look, I'm not the smartest guy. I'm talking about the book of Lamentations. So see if you can figure out what a good application out of Lamentations would be. You can sum it up in one word. Anybody? Lament. (laughs) I have two gifts. It's stating the obvious and overlooking the obvious. They run neck and neck. (laughs) Let me give you a a definition of what it means to lament. It means to intercede, to weep, to mourn, to cry out, even with songs or chants. There's a great example. Well, actually, the book of Lamentations is a great example, hence my encouragement to read it. But there's another one where when Moses was getting the Ten Commandments of God, um, as he's getting those Ten Commandments from God, the people over here in the camp are breaking all the Ten Commandments of God, even before they've got them. Now, Moses, as the Lord's telling him what's going on, Moses then makes an intercession, an appeal to the Lord. He says, if I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses could have very easily said, Lord, pardon their iniquity and their sin. To lament means to identify with others. And I just think, and we're not going to go through the whole year lamenting. I don't think that would be healthy. There's a time to cry, a time to laugh. But as the Lord leads us, let's lament. And what could you lament over? Well, I would submit, let's start with our own sin. Let's start with the sin or plight of our families. This one's a little harder. Deep breath. Have your children or loved ones been taken captive by the world? Are they, do you have loved ones that are in exile? I don't think we're going to talk them out of captivity. But what we can do is go to the one who can set the captive free. Let's lament for our church and the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world. For our community of Frisco, for our country, for this falling world. Fundamentally, as best we're able to, let's stop complaining And let's start lamenting. This communal focus of lamenting, it's togetherness. 
We have to do this together. You cannot fight an army by yourself. Hebrews 10 exhorts us to do three things. It says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. It says to think about how to stir one another up to love and good works and to not neglect meeting together. Let's gather together. If you've been out of fellowship this year, I just encourage you, get back in fellowship. Make a New Year's resolution to re-engage. Why? So we can encourage one another, particularly as our culture and our world grows darker. I want to end with this. It's out of Paul Tripp's book. It's actually the introduction to his book. It's a little bit lengthy. I'll try to read through it pretty quickly. Uh, His book, New Morning Mercies. Paul says, One of the stunning realities of the Christian life is that in a world where everything is in some state of decay, God's, God's mercies never grow old. They never run out. They never are ill-timed. They never dry up. They never grow weak. They never get weary. They never fail to meet the need. They never disappoint. They never, ever fail because they are new every morning. Form fitted for our challenges, disappointments, sufferings, temptations, and struggles with sin without and within are the mercies of the Lord. Sometimes they are awe-inspiring mercies, rebuking mercies, strengthening mercies, hope-giving mercies, rescuing mercies, transforming mercies, forgiving mercies, provision-making mercies, uncomfortable mercies, glory-revealing mercies, truth-illuminating mercies, courage-giving mercies. God's mercy is general to all his children. God's mercy is specific. Each child receives the mercy that is designed for his or her particular need or moment. God's mercy is predictable. It's the fountain that never stops flowing. God's mercy is unpredictable. It comes to us in surprising forms. God's mercy is a radical theology, but it is more than a theology. It is life to all who believe. God's mercy is ultimate comfort, but it is also a call to a brand new way of living. God's mercy really does change everything forever for all upon whom this mercy is bestowed. At the start of this new year, let's, let's make resolutions, absolutely. But let's not put our hope in our resolutions. Let's put our hope in our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we start each day, as you think about starting the week tomorrow, just encourage you, draw near to him and be reminded of who he is and what he has told us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.